the original paper that Werner Vinge wrote about the singularity. When I read it like a while ago, it felt very science fiction because it was written like in 93 and he's like making this prediction for like basically like 30, 30 years plus or minus there's going to be like superhuman intelligence. You read it now and you're like, oh, he kind of like laid out this like pretty clear roadmap and like we can quibble about all the details and so on. But the fact that we can kind of like read that document that was from 30 years ago and no longer view it as kind of this like wide-eyed science fiction thing, that's kind of wild. So I would say that like AI has been one of these things that maybe has like underperformed and then like drastically overperformed <laughs> in a very short amount of time. Hello again and welcome. I'm Eric Jorgensen. I don't know much, but I have some very smart friends. And if you listen to this podcast, then no matter who, where, or when you are, you do too. Together, we explore how technology, investing, and entrepreneurship will create a brighter, more abundant future. This podcast is one of a few projects I work on to read my book, blog, newsletter, or invest alongside us in early-stage tech companies. Please visit ejorgensen.com. Today, my guest is Sam Arbusman. He is the scientist-in-residence at Lux Capital, a hard-tech VC firm focused on turning science fiction into reality. Sam is also an author. He's a computer scientist. He has a PhD in computational biology. And I say this with the deepest love in my heart, is a wonderful, fantastic, enthusiastic nerd. In this episode, we touch on a range of topics, a wide range. Uh, we talk about startup strategies for deeply technical startups like Boston Dynamics and DeepMind, which was acquired by Google, how to accelerate the pace of innovation across a wide range of industries and technologies, how science fiction is the leading indicator of where technology is going and how scientific facts actually change over time. He has got an amazing perspective on technologies that will become massive companies of the coming decades. And I always get so much energy from talking to Sam and so many new ideas. And I hope you get a fraction of that today too. Our conversation starts shortly. Until then, here is this episode's sponsor. And if you're pulling out your phone, it's a great opportunity to leave a review in your podcast player, which is another amazing way to help the show. Thank you so much. This episode is sponsored by Bread. They're a newish sponsor. They are founded by very good friends of mine. Uh, and you can think of them as your technical co-founder to launch a company. They will create for you a pod of engineers and designers that is an entirely self-sufficient mini product team and they will help you design roadmaps tech stacks build the first products they will then help you recruit and onboard technical team members and go from zero to a product with a roadmap with a team this is not your typical dev shop they are extremely founder oriented they've been building companies together for a long time they've been founders themselves and they really love working closely with users and embedding with the team, moving really fast and building a solid foundation for a successful long-term company. A lot of agencies out there, I hate to say it, tend to bleed founders dry and have misaligned incentives and a short-term perspective that is not these folks. Uh, Bread is a great team. They're wonderful people and I know them personally. They do incredible, incredible work. I have a good friend, a repeat founder with a very successful exit who just signed a deal with them to build the first version of their product. And so if you have a startup or a company that needs a very talented technical team, please check out madebybread.com. Just take a look at their site and it'll give you a sense of, of what they do and the combination of engineering and design that really makes them special. If you reach out to them, please tell them Eric sent you. If you have any questions about them, uh, feel free to email me or DM me and I'll happily answer them or personally introduce you to the leaders at Bread. Now, thank you so much for listening. 
please enjoy this conversation with both ears and everything in between arriving in three, two, one. You, you, it seems like every single time we get together, I leave with a hundred new ideas and I uh, always learn something from you. And I'm very excited to be able to like share that with thousands of new people today. So, um, I'm excited to have you on the podcast after all the time we spent in person. Likewise, this is gonna be great. <laughs> I, a question I love to ask, but I don't think I've ever asked you before. Who are your heroes? Fictional, real, whoever, like. Who are my heroes? Oh, that is a good question. Let's see. I mean, I'm not sure I have any like heroes per se. I can cut, talk about maybe like my influences, but I would say, so let's see, I guess. And so certainly one person that had a very big influence on me, certainly when I was younger was my grandfather. So he, uh, he's, he was a dentist and then <laughs> most of my childhood was actually retired, but he also, he was an artist, but one of the other major things is that he was very, very interested in science, like science and technology and technological progress, as well as science fiction. Like he read, he actually, and he read huge amounts of science fiction would give me like, like giant bags of like old analog science fiction magazines. And like, I would like take them to camp with me. He read, and he's basically read, like he read science fiction since like the modern dawn of the genre. Like he read it, I think, I think he read Dune when it was like being serialized in a magazine before it even became a book. And so he like was always just introducing me to all these different things. I actually found out like years later that he had been reading popular science, I think for like 70 years, like, like something, something insane. Um, and then actually and I, I happened to know one of the editors there. And so I was able to like get him in as like one of their like longest readers, which was awesome. But certainly him exposing me to science fiction and kind of just like the true broad scope of what is possible scientifically, technologically, how we think about how all these different changes actually affect society as a whole. Cause, I mean, Cause the truth is in science fiction, it's, it has a lot of cool things, but it's not just like, here's a whole bunch of cool gadgets and technology. It's more, okay, if these things are real, how does it affect society? How does it, like, what, what are the legal, social, ethical, regulatory implications of these things? But kind of really understanding, like, in a much more holistic way and kind of seeing how all these things really ripple outwards. And yeah, he was, I would say, one of my major influences that kind of got me interested in, in thinking about all these different things around science and science fiction. Certainly in kind of the fictional realm, I would say one interesting, I, I would not characterize this as like a hero, but certainly one interesting early influence going into science fiction is the psycho historian Harry Seldon. So there's the like the the foundation trilogy by Isaac Asimov. And so like the premise of it is, is that and well, it's like the Galactic Empire is going to be collapsing and there's this whole thing and like how, how do we stop it? But underneath it, there is this field, this fictional field of psycho history, which is can we look at the statistical properties of societies as a whole and say, okay, like we understand each individual makes decisions that we can't predict. But when you get enough people together, then suddenly maybe there are these regularities, these kind of like mathematical and quantitative regularities. And I remember when I first read that in the book, it was really, really cool. And I thought, okay, how can I do this for real? It turns out that I'm not alone in this. If you talk to a lot of people in kind of the quantitative social sciences, a lot of them, their early influence was reading the Foundation Trilogy and thinking, okay, how can I make this reality? I, I think Paul Krugman, who's an economist, I think I he even wrote like an introduction to like a new edition of the Foundation Trilogy. And like, because he said like this was like his one, one of his major influences. And so for me, like thinking about this and thinking about, okay, what are the rules and regularities behind massive complex systems, especially in the social realm, was something that I thought a lot about and I ended up doing a lot of my research and kind of 
academic work related to that kind of thing. And so this idea of like, okay, there are like, obviously differences between biological systems and technological systems and social systems, but underneath it, they're all just big complex systems of huge, like huge numbers of interacting parts and how do we, co- how do we connect that? And this whole field of network science and complexity science is the kind of way of quantifying how all these things work. And so certainly that was kind of a, a North star for me, like thinking about, okay, like Harry Seldon did this in this kind of fake science fictional world. Can this be done for real? And the answer is sort of, and that's actually great. And and it's kind of this continuously growing field. I would say those are at least two influences, <laughs> one very real yeah. and one fictional. <laughs> those are awesome. I see, I see both of those in your work and your energy, right? Like I think you are play the role that your grandfather played for you for hundreds, if not thousands of other people with like your excitement about sci-fi and the recommendations that you bring and everything. And I heard some in your, your Harry Seldon piece, some rhymes in the TED talk that you gave uh, a while ago, probably 10 years ago now, the half-life of facts, which I think is a super interesting, like you, you brought up a very similar idea, which is like, it's very difficult to predict individual things. But when you look at a large mass as a system, patterns start to emerge that are actually really predictive of, of the outcome. You want to sort of take us through that? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah. So that, the half-life of facts, I mean, so I wrote a whole book about kind of this idea of like how knowledge changes over time and with kind of this analogy of, okay, we can't, it's very hard to predict which specific discovery is going to occur or which fact is going to be overturned. Like we can't, and to understand the landscape of knowledge is a very, very difficult thing. Every fact and detail of scientific discovery or whatever it is, is idiosyncratic in its own way. At the same time though, if you kind of abstract away the details in the same way you do this with like other kind of social systems and things like that, where you can kind of understand, I don't know, the, the rise and fall of cities or whatever it is, you can do the same kind of thing with knowledge, like how what we know grows and changes over time. And so the analogy is kind of the half by, by the analogy to radioactive radioactive materials. I can't predict when a specific atom of uranium is going to decay. It could decay in the next fraction of a second. It might take the thousands of years. But when I get a whole bunch of atoms together of uranium, suddenly I have a whole chunk of uranium. It goes from being like, entirely unknowable to actually very, very predictable. And you got you can actually trace out this very nice clear curve, this like this half-life of decay over time. And it turns out you can do the same kind of thing with trying to understand how knowledge changes. And so you can understand, like, look at the like how long it takes for the number of papers in a field to double. You can actually do some of this kind of like more mathematical, more mathematically precise work in terms of the half-life of certain fields. You can act, so there was a paper well, probably several decades ago. I don't actually remember when it was published, but it was looking at within certain fields in medicine. And it was looking at how long it takes for papers to be kind of become obsolete or overturned by newer tech, like by newer technical advances. And the base, the way they did this was they kind of gave, I think, the abstract or the findings to experts and they said, okay, which of these are true? Which ones have been overturned? And from that, they were able to kind of trace out this very nice curve. And and so, yeah, and the mathematical shape is probably a little bit different, but there's kind of this very nice metaphorical sense of it. There is this half-life to knowledge and how it gets overturned. It turned out there's a lot of these different regularities. And then we kind of and we often don't think about knowledge changing, or if we do, we kind of think about it as, oh yeah, like I don't know, the, the stuff in my textbooks when I was kid, a kid are no longer true. And then we're, and then we discover it's uh, it's false when I don't know, our kids come home and say, like, guess what? Like dinosaurs look completely different. They're like fearsome chickens instead of weird reptilian monsters. But like the truth is, beyond that though, there are all these regularities to how knowledge grows, how it gets overturned, and kind of this, there's relationship between like this. Like, the, the number of scientists involved, the, the population scale overall, how jargon barriers are overcome. There's all these there's all these different mathematical 
or at least quantitative and kind of structured ways of thinking about how knowledge grows and changes. Yeah, and that is certainly one area of kind of this like quantitative science, like quantitative social social understanding. In this case, it's actually like scientometrics, like the science of science, or people talk about it as meta science or meta research. But yeah, there's this, it's a very big burgeoning field, which is fantastic to think about. It makes me wish that we had like ongoing tracking of sort of the verifiability or the like likelihood or the how close the the a given paper is to maybe decaying or a given conclusion is to decaying or even like what are all the laws that were passed that was based on this fact that now may have changed or may have been overturned or may have been refined like there's, there's a lot that's based on science that maybe doesn't reflect the changes that science is going through yeah and, and i think this is a, a problem well and first one thing to recognize is that science is a very human endeavor so all the idiosyncrasies and biases and kind of imperfections of any other endeavor science is like has these kinds of things because i mean it's being done by scientists being done by humans which is I mean, great in many ways because we can get very excited and want to like work at the frontier but as, as a downside it means like we're human like you're gonna I mean, people might work on research that is out out of date or they'll cite papers that are that have maybe been refuted without necessarily realizing that kind of thing. And the nice thing is, is actually as scientific research has has kind of come online, people have begun to kind of take these vast corpora of scientific literature and figure out if they can kind of do these kinds of things. And so there's work that has been done to actually say, okay, let's use certain AI techniques to see when someone cites another paper, is it just citing it because like, this is interesting? Is it citing it because we're saying we actually agree with what you're with what you're doing like we maybe have some sort of confirmatory results or is it actually refuting and saying like i'm citing this paper because like you're full of crap this is no longer true (laughs) and and so there have been ways of actually kind of like measuring this and so people are trying to do these kinds of things in the same way though people have actually also been thinking about okay how can we use some of these kind of techniques to see like how can we stitch together bits of knowledge that should have been connected like a long time ago, but be, but because the vast scope of knowledge has never been connected, no one actually knows this. Like a really, so there's this great paper in like the mid 1980s where this information scientist Don Swanson he created this like fun thought experiment. He said like imagine somewhere in the vast scientific literature there's a paper that says A implies B, and so you've read that paper, but there's somewhere else in the scientific literature that says B implies C. But because the literature is so big, no one's actually read both these papers, and so it might be true if you combine them, that A would imply C, but because no one has actually read these two papers, papers together, no one knows this. And so what he called this, he called this uh, undiscovered public knowledge. It's kind of like knowledge that is known, but it's because, because it's out there, but no one has actually discovered it because no one's actually connected it. And so the nice thing was, that, like, even though it was the mid 80s, he's like, all right, I'm not going to keep this as a thought experiment. I'm actually going to use like the cutting edge technology of the day, which was, I think, like keyword searches in like medical databases that are online, but he actually ended up making some really interesting results. I think he actually, he found some sort of relationship between some like circulatory disorder and like consuming fish oil to actually help alleviate that disorder. And then I ended up publishing it in a medical journal, even though he was not a physician, which is pretty cool. And of course, now since then, people have begun trying to kind of do this at a much larger, like much more automated kind of high, high, high scale kind of uh, Yeah, I approach. imagine AI would be another huge unlock. Oh, totally. Right. Like, it's like, oh, like we now have all this, like, let's begin to stitch together all these different domains. And, and the interesting thing is, and, and this is, I, 
the world that I play in is kind of this weird interdisciplinary world. So I'm often like connecting one idea from another to another domain and kind of almost doing like import export of ideas and people and things like that. But the cool thing though is related to this is, is like that there still is a lot of this to be done. I mean, obviously AI, I think is going to help a lot with this kind of thing, but, and you can see this, like just because everything is on the internet doesn't necessarily mean that now everyone has it at their fingertips. Like there's still these jargon barriers that are incredibly difficult to overcome. And there was, I'm struggling to remember the exact details, but I, I remember that there was some paper that came out probably several decades ago where the, the author looked at a number of different mathematical models and he looked to see how many times they had been reinvented in different domains because they were just called different things. And so there was one that I think had been like reinvented like eight or 10 times because people just didn't realize that these are the thing. And actually in like the world of like complexity science and network science, I remember seeing some examples of this because it's kind of this inherently interdisciplinary field. You would like you could be on a mailing list and someone would say, oh, how do I measure this kind of metric of connection between different people or some some social network metric? And someone would say, oh, this has actually been known in sociology for like 30 years or whatever. And like it was just this constant thing of just like people like like not knowing even what terms to search for and then someone kind of helping out. And yeah, so there's there's a lot of really interesting possibilities. Like now that all this stuff is out there, how can we kind of make that much more use of all the kind of like the raw material that we already have now at our fingertips? This may not be a fair question, given what you said about the difficulty of predicting individual sort of discoveries, but does that apply on the other side too? Like, do you have a hunch on which sort of commonly accepted scientific facts are about to expire or get overturned or get refined, let's say? I mean, so there, I mean, there is like, what was like the term, like the Lindy effect, where it's like things that have been around for longer are kind of more likely to, to stay. So I think that's like not a bad rule of, rule of thumb. That being said, and there are many counterexamples. I mean, sorry, going back to like yeah, my the, grandfather. The Lindy and the Half-Life, really, you kind of have right, to yeah, overlay so, yeah, so, it. So, they so, almost yeah. conflict. Yeah. <sighs> I don't know if they conflict, but it's like kind of recognized. Like, yeah, there are there is a certain amount of permanence, but there also is a certain amount of flux. Yes, yeah, so like my grandfather, who I mentioned before, he and so when he was in dental school, he actually learned the wrong number of human chromosomes. There was this like, I think like 20-year period where we had been able to measure, like to count the number of chromosomes within a cell, but we didn't have a really good like, visualization technique. It wasn't until I think like the mid fifties where they got kind of this, this better method. And so, and yeah, and so there was, I guess like two, two decades where people thought it was 48 chromosomes instead of 46, which is kind of wild. But like, that was like, it seems like a pretty basic thing. And so and in truth though, it's less about like, okay, this is something we thought was true. And now it's totally not true. It's more, it, it is this process of refinement. I, I, it's this kind of thing of like, we are constantly pr- approaching this like asymptotic approach to the truth. And actually in that, in that talk, like the, the Half-Life Facts talk, I kind of, I give this quote from Isaac Asimov, going back to Isaac Asimov. You know, I guess these are a number of touchstones of my own, <laughs> where he was, I think someone had written to him and said, like, we used to think the earth was flat. And that, and then now we don't, and then now we th- and we used to think it was a perfect circle, and now we know it's like this oblate spheroid. Like how can like like how can we know anything is true? And Asimov's response is like, if you think that thinking the Earth is flat is just as wrong as thinking the Earth is a perfect sphere, he's like, then your view is like wronger than both of them put together. And he's like, like we're kind of constantly approaching. He actually he showed like the amount of error in like in like a flat versus like a perfect sphere versus a blade spheroid, and he kind of shows that like we are kind of constantly approaching in the same way that like. Newtonian mechanics was like it was succeeded by Einsteinian like understanding of relativity. It wasn't, but but it's not that like 
the, the ideas of Newton are no longer accurate. They are just kind of like a special case of a more general thing. And like when you're building, I don't know, a bridge, you probably don't need to worry about things dealing like, like close to the speed of light. So therefore, like the Einsteinian corrections and, and modifications, like they're not necessarily that vital to building a bridge or whatever it is. And so, and I feel like a lot of things with science are this kind of process of refinement. The reason why people don't necessarily perceive it that way is because oftentimes when we look at like not the scientific literature, but like scientific journalism, they are reporting on things that are like just been like just been discovered or just just recently known, which means these are scientific ideas that are being worked at at the frontier of knowledge. And the, the frontier of knowledge is where we know the least. And so that's where there's going to be all this flux and change. And so I think people, there is this kind of divide between the perception and the reality. There is, for the most part, this kind of body of knowledge that is being constantly refined. And then at the, at the, the border of it, there's this constant mess and, and flux. And like, that's where the scientists want to learn and, and, and operate because it's, it's awesome and it's where we don't know as much where we can make advances. But we also have to be a lot more humble about recognizing, okay, that's where we don't know as much. And so therefore, there's going to be things that get overturned. And that's fine. That's and not only <laughs> is it fine, like that's, that's amazing. Like that means there's still a lot left to learn. Yeah, that, that's, it's hard to remember that the whole point is exploring the uncertainty, not necessarily like reveling in it, living at the edge of it, being willing to step into it and step back from it. Totally. Yeah. And like science is like, and people think of science as this body of knowledge, but, and, and like, into a certain degree it is, but it's really, it's less about the body of knowledge and more about science as a method. It is like a rigorous means of querying the world and constantly learning. And this was brought home to me. There was a professor of mine from grad school. I, I remember I went, I went back. So I was thinking I was giving a talk at, at Cornell where I did my PhD. And I remember I was catching up with him and he was, he told me this great story where he had gone in to teach a course on like a Tuesday, taught some topic. And then the next day he actually read a paper that invalidated everything he had learned. And so then he went, <laughs> he went on Thursday to the next, the next day of the class. And he's like, remember what I taught you? It's wrong. And if that bothers you, you need to get out of science. And it was like this, like, like <laughs> rejoicing in the fact that like these things can be overturned. And, I, and of course, it's a lot easier to say when it's like not your own ideas being overturned, like then oftentimes like then kind of going back to like the idea of like the human nature of science where people kind of fight tooth and nail for their own ideas. At the same time, though, which, which is important, we want to keep everyone honest and so, like versus just being like, oh, I'm going to turn over everything. But at the same time, though, I think there is this, like there, there's something wonderful about a field and a, like a body of this endeavor that delights in, in turning things over. And this is like the, the, the motto of the Royal Society, kind of like one, one of the early scientific societies was like Nullius, Nullius et Verba. I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm not doing it justice. It's the Latin for basically kind of like, don't like, don't take anyone's word for it. I, I'm pretty sure that's what it is. <laughs> I like it. And I like the, the sort of the, the academic or the scientific rigor brings the same sort of rigor that the market does. And, and that like you, you're sort of constantly checking the truth of your beliefs against either the physical reality or the economic and like sort of the market reality, which is where we both spend a lot of time, like that intersection between new discoveries, new technologies, new knowledge, and getting that actually deployed to like the most, the most people getting new discoveries distributed in some form of product. And I think, you know, I mean, you've had a front row seat to this at Lux for a long time, which, which we'll get into, but I want to start by digging into something that you sort of taught me, but we didn't get a chance to dig into, which is, which is like the business models and the variety of where this happens and how it happens. So I didn't realize that 
But I think the two examples you gave me, Boston Dynamics and DeepMind, which are acquired by Google, were not so much like businesses with products as a collection of academics pushing on a thing that we knew could have commercial potential, but never really even approached being a business with a product. Can, can you like, are there other examples? Can you take us through that? Like where else has that happened? Yeah, that, yeah, that's interesting. And, and I maybe wouldn't quite characterize it as like, like oh, it's like, oh, just kind of like this, a bunch of people without a product. I think they had a very clear vision. The, the, right, I would say like, the, the, right, right they, had, they had a vision, they were building lots of things, but I think it was one of these kinds of things where it was, there's a recognition, recognition. I don't know as much about Boston Dynamics, but I've seen this maybe in some other companies as well, that you kind of have this sense there's there is a certain technology or kind of bundle of scientific ideas that are going to be valuable down the line. Now it might be a while before those kinds of things are actually commercializable, but there's this sense that okay, if we can almost like corner the market on the talent in this space, and maybe it's like reinforcement learning in the case of in the case of DeepMind or whatever it is, then that is going to be just kind of like such a valuable thing in and of itself that. That eventually maybe it would be good for as some sort of acquisition target. Now, of course, I mean, obviously, in like the venture world, like making something like an appealing acquisition target is not always the goal. You want to kind of have like some massive company that will become this like category of of its own that will go public and kind of become this massive thing. But at the same time, though, it is a very interesting idea of like this is a way of kind of building something that can kind of almost like straddle the, the worlds of like business and research and science because it's kind of, it's understood that what these people are doing is very valuable and it's very hard to find the talent in those spaces outside of this specific company. Um, but the truth is, I mean, and this is, and, and yeah, we can talk about this more, but I, I think there's, and there is begun seeing over the past few years kind of this broader sense of like people trying to expand the types of structures that people are thinking about in terms of like what what is a research organization? What is a company? What is a startup? And and from my perspective, it's actually kind of exciting that like these boundaries are getting a little bit more porous and amorphous, um, which is pretty cool. And I, I'm happy to dig into that more and talk about that as well. Yeah, I think that's a that's something that I know you've put a ton of thought into. I, I think what's compelling to me about both of the like sort of the, the example that we we mentioned and these new research orgs it changes the incentives like just enough it, which maybe even changes the timeline right like what's exciting to me about boston dynamics or DeepMind isn't necessarily like you know they got acquired or whatever it is that you know how much sooner are some of these things going to hit the market because they they started moving into the like into the world of commercial incentives and paybacks rather than the world of academic incentives and or papers or it, it, like I, it's not always obvious when a technology or a person needs to sort of move between those two ecosystems, but the feedback loops between each are very different and encourage very different things. And if you believe that the impact doesn't really isn't there until the technology is distributed, then timing that transition appropriately becomes like a point of huge leverage. Yeah, and, and it's not always trivial though to kind of figure this kind of thing out. Actually, a friend of mine, Ben Reinhardt, who I, who I think you know, he he has this great article where he wrote. It, it's like, when does an idea that smells like research be a startup? Like, like when should, so it's like something that kind of feels like research. Like when should it actually be a company? And and he kind of has this almost like this like map or kind of like this flow chart kind of thing in, in words. But like the idea is like, okay, most of the time there's only like very specific a specific set of circumstances when an idea that is kind of more researchy should actually be kind of a traditional startup, which I mean, on the one hand, I definitely would love it if like more 
like researchy kind of companies can be created because I think it will yeah, allow kind of the, there to be this kind of nice, it's kind of like the, the, this nice import export business from the research world into the technology world, uh, into the startup world, and actually like allowing people to actually have these kinds of things. At the same time, though, it is very, very difficult because there are so many instances where people either like think something is ready to be commercialized and it's not quite there yet, or people are like enamored of the idea of having a company. Sometimes whether or not it actually makes sense to have a company, but they're just like, oh, I, I want to, like, I have this cool idea. Let's turn it into a company. And the truth is, like, and you see a lot of companies like this where it's like, there is some cool research advance and, and it's kind of, it's like a research advance in search of a use case. And which, and that being said, and I am certainly all in favor of people trying to find uses for research. At the same time, though, there are many situations where like, it is not clear that you like the use case you have hit upon is actually one that people will actually want to pay for. And so and sometimes people kind of use this like kind of pejorative, like, oh, like, is this a startup or is this kind of like a research product? And I, I will say, for one, I, I love research products. The truth <laughs> is like not all research products should actually be companies. But it's a very interesting kind of thought exercise to figure out, okay, how like, yeah, what are the situations when these kinds of things are possible? And and I and I do think it is becoming a little bit more possible to kind of it, it used to be there's kind of like a very narrow like going back to like when should a research idea that smells like smells or one idea that smells like research to be a startup there used to be like a very narrow set of those kinds of things and i think it is expanding but i still think it's narrower than many people realize but uh, so like yeah so there's always it's a tough balance yeah what, why don't you set up sort of the the context in the world of alternative research orgs and then we can hop back to ben reinhardt because i know he's got a really exciting example there yeah so and so these alternative research organizations and so basically the way i kind of view it is there's and when we think about doing research, we often think about it being done in the context of like a deep tech startup that we talked about, or a like a university laboratory, or maybe a corporate industry lab, or maybe like one or two other kinds of things. But oftentimes, when research is being done, it's done in kind of this small set of different institutional forms. But the truth is, I mean, those institutional forms are really just a few points in some weird high dimensional landscape of institutions and organizations. And over the past few years, people have begun saying, like, maybe we should actually be exploring this high dimensional space and trying to find new institutional forms, whether it's you know, things that kind of combine the best of startups and research organizations that are kind of more engineering oriented, like, like, so an example would be like a focused research organization. Maybe there's things that can be for profit, like a for profit research lab, but it could be entirely bootstrapped. So it doesn't need to be kind of venture back. Is there a way of doing nonprofit work? in an entirely distributed way? And can we think about funding and people and, and individual researchers rather than specific projects and topics? Like there's all these different things. And the truth is when I think about it, there's all like, like going back to like this high dimension, like this high dimensional space analogy, there's all these different dimensions and we've kind of gotten locked to saying, okay, everything should be this specific thing, but no, we should actually be like twiddling all the knobs for all these different dimensions and trying things. And, and the nice thing is over the past few years, people have begun to try it. And there's been this like, massive Cambrian explosion of all these different forms. And, and as someone kind of comes from like the biology world, oftentimes when there is this massive explosion, sometimes there might be some sort of extinction event afterwards um, because there are these evolutionary pressures. Now, that is unfortunate for a lot of these organizations, but I do think this kind of pressure will hopefully yield new types of institutional forms that will be sort of like templates that other people can use. So rather than saying, like, I have a cool idea or I want to do a certain type of research. Should I do it in the form of a startup or stay in, or stay in academia? Now there will be a whole suite of possibilities. So in terms of like, which ones do I think are going to win? I'm pretty agnostic, but I, I just love the fact that so many people are trying so many more things than 
that really just were happening until a few years ago. So that's uh, it's super exciting to see. And, and you've compiled a big list of these and sort of categorized and organized them, which is on your site, which we'll we'll link to in the show notes. Uh, one that we have talked about in particular that I, I think is exciting that I'd love for you to give maybe the context on DARPA and then like how how that feeds into what Ben is doing at Speculative Technologies. Yeah, sure. So yeah, so DARPA, I mean, so DARPA is like the Defense Advanced Research Project Agency, which I guess used to be just the ARPA. Uh, I think they want to eventually make like the kind of defense um, Dis- disambiguated more, more, from on offense. Yeah, make, yeah. make it clear. <laughs> but basically the idea is, and so DARPA and ARPA, like, I mean, oh, they have been enormously valuable in, in funding kind of like spurring forward a number of different kind of research advances. I and mean, so like the internet is a big one. Moderna and like, R- like RNA it. vaccines, like that is not like mRNA vaccines. Like that's another big one. Like, and so they've done a whole bunch of different things and there's like, this massive list. And so, but the way DARPA operates is they are, they're not doing research in house. They kind of, ha- they, what they do is they have a number of um, program managers and what, and each program manager is kind of responsible for a specific research program where they kind of come in for a small number of years. Um, so it's a time limited position. So there's a certain sense of urgency and they have kind of this vision of, okay, here is the kind of thing I want to see happening in the world of science and technology. And then what they do is using a combination of purse strings, like grant, like, like the ability to actually give out grant money, as well as maybe the idea that like the defense, like the defense department might be a, a, a consumer kind of of these products kind of on, on the other end, along with a sort of coordination function, they're basically able to kind of catalyze certain fields forward. And so people will, someone will come in and say, okay, I want to move, I don't know, some field in biotechnology forward in some specific way. And they work, they kind of like create this sort of roadmap. They work with a number of different labs, um, some, I think companies as well, get, and coordinate them, kind of give them money in order to kind of do the things that they think are important forward. And then hopefully on the other end, they will, I, the, the actual advances will kind of pop out. And so it's kind of one of these things where it's like, and, and the truth is, DARPA, I mean, it is a government agency and has a lot of money, but like relative to a lot of other government agencies, like grant making agencies, it's actually pretty small, but it's been able to kind of use this sort of catalytic structure in order to kind of move various different fields forward and build things like the internet, which is pretty exciting. And so Ben's idea was like, what, like DARPA is great, but like there's kind of a limited number of things that can be working on. So is it possible to actually build a private version of, of DARPA? And so in this case, so he's actually building an organization called Speculative Technologies, which is a nonprofit devoted toward, devoted to moving, kind of like road mapping certain fields um, and creating programs in a number of different domains around like molecular manufacturing and some other, and, and some other ones. And I think there's, there's a handful already now and he's going to be spinning up even more. And the idea is, is like find a specific like top notch program manager who can then kind of help survey the landscape of some field and then kind of move these specific domains forward. And, and the interesting thing there is I think that the like the role of program manager, and I've talked with Ben about this, this kind of thing. And like I think it's like well known. Like the like program manager is a very, very specific type of like person and like institutional role because it's different than running a specific lab. It's different than running a company. It's different than just being like someone who gives out grant money. It's like someone who is kind of doing all these kinds of things in some sort of distributed way, but basically saying, okay, here is my grand vision and I'm going to figure out the best way to kind of give people money in order to bend the world towards my vision of the future, um, which is really, really exciting. And and uh, yeah, and so Ben is working to build this kind of thing. 
I, as you were describing that, I was picturing uh, a, a similar project from the Foresight Institute, which is the tech tree mapping. So they'll take a, you know, an area like space or nanotechnology or something and, and map out sort of all the different capabilities, the different bottlenecks, the different companies, the different research papers. And it's a, it's interesting to think about where like overlapping these two ideas to think about, you know, what, how can we progress through a tech tree? What's the most efficient sort of place to drop money or capabilities or transfer knowledge or connect people or overlay efforts between, you know, academia and some of these research organizations, or maybe startups that are trying to commercialize it, or even customers who know that they need it and like unlock some of those things. There's, there's so much that like, I mean, the truth is like, yeah, speculative technology is doing a lot of this kind of like world mapping and like, under like bottlenecks analysis kind of stuff as well because like that is a precondition for doing all the other stuff as well and so and, and the truth is like there is this kind of growing community of people kind of playing in this space and like trying to kind of understand okay in the near term what are the things that need to be done and, and then like working backwards or whatever and trying to figure these kinds of things out and which is interesting because like, on the one hand when people think about science like it's scientific and technological advancement and innovation they think of it as kind of this very open-ended thing like someone makes an advance and then someone else figures out how to, how to make it useful and they kind of recombine things and this is very much saying okay no, like we have a very specific direction we want to move in. And the way I think about this is like, it's not an either or kind of thing. Like, and so there are some, there are many, many times when we need a very clear kind of like coordinating function to actually do this kind of stuff and move things forward. On the other hand, though, there are many instances where it is actually very good to have, have this like very undirected kind of research. And so, like, and there's this book by, uh, the research that the scientists Ken Stanley and Joel Lehman of, uh, it's called Why Greatness Cannot Be Planned. And the idea behind it is like anytime you have some like weird high dimensional search space and like, and you're trying to find something in there, like having a very clear objective function, a very specific goal is actually really, really hard to get to. And so their argument is basically it's much better to just kind of have this like, undirected sort of like novelty kind of curiosity, interesting based kind of search and then combine all the different things that you that you stumble upon or you discover you create and these kind of create these like stepping stones that can, can be recombined in kind of novel ways and then eventually will get us towards the eventual goals and i think from in when it comes to most innovation you kind of need a little bit of both and for me and like personally like i love kind of the undirected thing and maybe this is my way of just kind of like justifying the kind of like undirected way my curiosity operates but at the same time though if it's too like with there, when there are certain things where it's maybe like one or two engineering advances away, or there is a specific direction we should be going in, and we don't necessarily want to waste as much time, effort, or resources, then actually having a very clear roadmap and someone who can kind of provide this coordination function can be really, really valuable as well. Yeah, it's interesting that the solutions, the, the ways to push progress in both of those scenarios are totally different, right? Like the gray sort of undirected thing, you just need like sample size and time, the law of large numbers, right? And the other is kind of someone uh, like a sniper who's really precise about understanding the big map and just like plugging these two things in can could theoretically move, you know, a technology up a decade or something like, and when you see these fields, and you see the outcome of, of these processes over and over again. And then you gain the sense that we have some agency over that, either individually or, or collectively. It's just a very, like, fundamentally optimistic thing. I mean, like, oh, like, this is controllable. This is optimizable. There's a lot of low-hanging fruit in, in all these fields to move up. Yeah, no, I, I, think, I think there's something there. I also think, I, I think and, and the truth is both of these kind of approaches I actually view as, like, fundamentally optimistic, where it's like, I can just, you, I can just be, like, searching around and finding interesting things. And that is contributing towards kind of this greater endeavor. And on the other hand, saying like, I can make this massive advance 
through kind of like noticing, yeah, these points of leverage. It's maybe kind of like the the best of like like the like the forces of history combined with like like the great man of, idea of history. It's like like we kind of need them both. And at least when it comes to this specific thing, I don't, I don't want to make too many judgments about the forces of history <laughs> as a whole. Are there any other of these alternative research orgs you want to kind of highlight or that you think are interesting examples? I, there's a lot that are like, and they're like interesting in different ways. But I would say like one that I think is kind of fun in, in a sort of distinctive way is um, Ink and Switch, which is involved in like research, like kind of like com- computer science research at the intersection of like human computer interaction and like user interface kind of things as well, like tools for thinking. And the way they operate, um, and this is kind of my understanding from the outside, is they, I think they, they kind of describe it as like the studio model, kind of by analogy with movies, where it's like, like when you're making a movie, it's not necessarily just a company. It's like you kind of bring a ton of people together for a certain amount of time. And then you, like they all kind of work on this thing, this project, and then kind of everyone goes on their merry way. And the way in which uh, Ink and Switch operates, I think Ink and Switch has a number of people who are kind of more full-time, but oftentimes it's specific people are involved for specific projects. And so they're the kind of more more permanent members of Ink and Switch will say, will kind of help set, set the roadmap and say, okay, here are the different things we want to work on. But what they'll do is then say, okay, we have a product for uh, the next three to six months. Let's bring together the team of like the best people, have them work on this thing, and then figure out, okay, what is the next step? And the nice thing about that is because Often in the world of tech, people like it's hard to necessarily get the best people for a very long amount of time because people are just like switching from companies or whatever, or they're just very, very expensive. But oftentimes there's a lot of top-notch people who are kind of in between things for a certain amount of time. Maybe like they started a company and then it got sold and now they're trying to figure out what their next thing is for a few months, or they like are moving from one company to another, but kind of want to take, take some time off. And you can get them for a, like, a relatively short amount of time. And Ink and Switch is able to capitalize on it and say, okay, we're going to kind of work with these amazing, amazing people and get this top-notch talent to work on these research products and kind of string them together towards this massive kind of research program, um, which is pretty exciting. Yeah, that's that's interesting. It's just taking advantage of whatever components you have you have laying around and, and being a very modular approach. Yeah, that's interesting. Where do you where do tech transfer offices sort of fit into the alternative research? They're they're traditionally they're supposed to be the interface to sort of commercialize the discoveries coming out of academic institutions, universities, but that's hit or miss and they all have very different sort of capabilities and each professor i'm sure is, is sort of unique and each each bit of research is unique is that something that you have have much experience with or or how does that fit into like the alternative research world so i mean obviously as you mentioned like there's a lot of like, issues with kind of tech transfer as it's kind of currently done and like and a lot of research is like, like there's a lot of ip that kind of sits on the shelf and is never examined and it's like, very hard to kind of figure out how to actually transfer those kind of things and make them usable when it comes to like the alternative research organizations, I, I mean, I think some of them are trying to kind of sidestep some of this kind of stuff. And, and, and but in different ways. I mean, like obviously they want to, and many of them, especially the for-profit ones, are trying to create a certain amount of IP that can be productized or licensed and actually create some sort of value. And, and I still think we're still in kind of like the early days of like figuring out how that's all going to work. I think partly because there's sometimes that there can often be a tension between IP capture and kind of just the endeavor of science where like, like science is this like public good of knowledge that's supposed to like, okay, you're supposed to share everything with everyone. And then IP is like, okay, we're going to actually kind of own some of this. And like IP is very good. And, like, and there's like a lot of good reasons why and we have IP and like the patent system and, like, and, and these kinds of, and like 
like it's written to the United States Constitution. It was like a very kind of it was recognized like these kinds of things are important. At the same time, though, these new types of organizations uh, sometimes strive to like capture very large amounts of the value that they're creating in terms of IP. And I'm not sure that always is going to work the best. To be honest, I'm pretty agnostic as to where we're going to end up. I think you kind of have to find the right balance. I'm, I think universities, they kind of, they want to capture more than they, than they do, but they kind of go about it and sometimes like kind of ham-handed, like ham-fisted kind of way. And then other organizations that might be for-profit are trying to like capture more and maybe successfully, but then maybe as a result of that, they're not necessarily able to do as much like some like capital S science. So I'm not sure what the right balance is. Do you have a sense of like what, what the right balance should be? I, I it just, I, I know it's different. I know, I know like I've looked not super deeply, but at enough v- different tech transfer opportunities to see the massive range of differences in different deals that different companies get, even within the same sort of tech transfer institution. And it seems like the universities that are producing novel discoveries and novel technologies should be producing like hit after hit after hit like commercially. But when you look at the incentives, largely it seems like short-term incentives like put in place by the tech transfer office, which is just the interface to like get the technology out the door and into the market. They put all these onerous terms on like cash payments or royalties and trying to like recoup like their cash expenses, even though they don't, there's an artificial need on the university side when the university could, from a capital perspective, have the longest view in the room and don't mind having decades to like make this company successful they don't need their cash back for 20 years and it helps the company succeed and helps the technology to get out there. It helps the professor get rich and have an impact and like live a good life. I'm not an expert in it, but like just from the outside with a first principles kind of mindset, it seems frustratingly misaligned with the the sense that we're looking at these industries and saying like, okay, what are all the components in this industry and how can we like move technologies forward? How can we move the corpus of knowledge forward and how can we get technologies distributed to people that makes their lives better? And I don't think that's how each individual like node in the, in the like university academic text transfer, like CEO sort of stack is looking at it. Yeah. And I, and I think, yeah. With, and with universities in general, I, I feel like oftentimes like whichever organization or individual kind of like afford to play the long, like the longest game, like they're going to be the ones that, like are going to be like best position to win, and right in universities, and and I think this is kind of one of the things where universities, I know, and universities have been around for like some have been around for hundreds of years, if not like I think the, the oldest university is probably around a thousand years old. So like they can afford to play like a much longer game than a lot of other institutions. Um, I think the downside is like how do we like what like what are the incentives like the timeline? Is it just like the career risk of the people inside the university? I don't. I mean, I mean, like at a, at a academic level, I mean, like people always say, "Oh, like you know, like academics can like play a very long, long game in terms of research." But the truth is, like they're often operating on the the, the time scale of like research grants and things like that, and, like grant proposals or grant cycles. And so, and, and I wonder if there might be a similar kind, yeah, a similar kind of incentive, like incentives within the like the tech transfer kind of world of like, yeah, because because the truth is, like they can take a very long time horizon and say, "Okay, we're just going to let you do whatever you want," and because we're going to be so enlightened. You are eventually 15, 20 years down the line going to give us a like massive donation that you'll just like out of the goodness of your heart recognize. And like maybe it won't happen all the time, but like like on average, people are going to give these massive donations because they recognize this is a very enlightened perspective. That would actually be kind of like one extreme. But at the same time, though, like I don't necessarily I, I agree. Like there needs to be kind of this recognition of like, yeah, there is right, there are these long time horizons. They can afford to play this game. 
but yeah, but we, we're not seeing. It. And so yeah, maybe this is the kind of thing where because one of the other areas I also play with is like like new types of educational institutions, and I feel like. I haven't looked as much at the like intersection of like educational institutions and like new types of research institutions, which are basically like reinventing the university. But yeah, maybe there is the opportunity to say, okay, well, let's yeah reexamine things from first principles, or at least like tweak the model, or recognize okay, what a university is is in is a point in some like larger space, and like let's just kind of like do a little random walk a little bit and kind of see maybe as we as we modify some of the the, the terms and conditions of the tech transfer stuff that it'll actually become much more amenable. But yeah, I feel like we've kind of converged almost like too rapidly on a set of conditions and, and ways that these things operate, but that's clearly not the global maximum. Like, yeah. Seems like the best practices, the best practices are not the best practices. <laughs> yeah. yes. um, right. They're just the most common practices. Yeah. Education's an interesting one. I, I didn't anticipate going into this with you, but I, it strikes me that we are entering like the, the, the technologies that are coming out today and getting commercialized and distributed, AI maybe foremost among them, are could be deeply disruptive for education in, in a in a very good way, right? Like it could really scale sort of like the personalized and self-paced educational approach. I'm curious, sort of to maybe talk through that with you, right? Like, you know, there's there's a sense in which universities are for research, but there's a sense in which universities are are for education. And this is going to be a really interesting chapter. We're watching schools try to like figure out how to like track and ban kids from using AI to do their homework instead of like, all right, well, let's 10x the expectations and give them all the tools that we can, right? Have you sort of... Given right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, like, rather than like, yeah, like preventing them from using these kinds of things, say, well, maybe like the, I don't know, I was reading this, yeah, it was like maybe like the five paragraph structure of an essay is like not the best way to write. It's a kind of like, it's like just works and we can kind of easily grade it or whatever. And certainly at the university level, the universities are interesting because like really they are like a bundle of different functions that have kind of been like, I don't know, like hallowed by time. Of like, so there's like the research function, there is the educational function, there's like, I don't know, they, um, like, and like a lot of like, they kind of like, like elite universities, there's like a certain like socialization function of like, this is kind of the first opportunity that people kind of, like young people have to kind of just exist as adults on their own. And like this, like they're kind of like learning how to be people. And like, it's a weird collection of activities that we all have like a university do, um, which is not to say that we, therefore we should like be unbundling all of these, but I think it kind of, like we have to look at, okay, what are the different role, like what are the different functions and then figure out how can we, which ones do actually make sense naturally and which ones also can be modified. And so, yeah, education more broadly. And so in terms of what the, what the university looks like in 20 years, I don't know. My guess is that the, the universities that are going to be more willing to change rapidly or experiment are going to be like the lower tier ones because the, like the top, like I don't know, the Harvards of the world, like they have the luxury to say, okay, we're like, we're a brand name. We don't have to change as quickly as possible. We can kind of just do whatever we want. And like, people will still come to us while like, I mean, you've seen like over, uh, over the past like decade plus, maybe close to two decades now, it's like Michael Crowe, the president of Arizona State University. He, he's been able to kind of try like a whole bunch of different things and do some like really interesting experimentation at the kind of university level there. Um, so like for an example, there was he, they have this uh, center called the Center for Science and the Imagination, which kind of connects scientists and engineers with science fiction writers to kind of get both groups to be as creative and imaginative as possible, which is like bonkers and wild. Now, going back to like the kind of like education overall, I do think it's going to kind of totally change how we educate. I think like the ability, not just to have like, and right now it's great that we have like videos that people can watch and like that, but like this kind of personalized as well as kind of like 
interactive sort of educational content, I think is going to be, uh, and like adapted content. Uh, and there's a lot of people like building companies in this kind of space as well uh, already with like, a lot of the AI stuff. But I think, yeah, it's going to be wild. I also think it will, I mean, also related to like the fact that you were saying like, oh, like how are we like avoiding, like, like trying to get and students not use these technologies for certain things. I think we should ideally be thinking about, okay, how can we get and maybe they first need to learn the basics on their own, but then say, okay, how can we kind of use these things in partnership with humans? In the same way, and like calculators is like a very simple example. I mean, like, like you, you have to learn, you have to learn your multiplication tables. You have to learn how to do long division, kind of these basic things, because you need to know how you need to be, have like a way of like estimating if the numbers you get from computers and calculators are wildly wrong. Like it's good to have those basic skills, but then, yeah, at a certain point, you're like, okay, just like, like use the calculators and computers the entire time. And I feel like the same kind of thing with a lot of these as well. Like it is important to be able to know how to like structure an argument, think through things, connect different ideas, articulate the ideas that you have in your head in a way that is compelling to another human being. But once you kind of learn those basics of like rhetoric and things like that, like then maybe it is also good to like have a machine partner that helps you with brainstorming and creative endeavor or whatever it is. And so, and there's a lot, and th- I'm not saying anything like totally not like a lot of people are thinking about this. Yeah. So there's a long way of saying, I think it will be used, how it will be used. Uh, we're like barely scratching the surface. Yeah. How have you been using like chat GPT or any of the other AI tools in your, in your day to day? So some of the, and so a lot of the way I've been using it has been like, first, just like fun, just like the, these are like fun new tools. And especially with like, like the, the image generation ones, those are just like, they're they're just wild and exciting for me the thing that i find most inter- interesting and certainly i've been using kind of like help with uh, maybe like certain ideas or if i'm like trying to think of something and i can't google it in quite the, in quite the right way i've like used chat gpt and it has, it's, it's actually worked quite well for me though i'm very interested in using these tools to kind of like probe the underlying cognitive map that that exists in these systems so like for example like with dolly one of the things that i played with it um like early on was I, I was very interested in like having it make like a whole bunch of like maps for, or um, posters from like world's fairs, but like fictional world's fairs. And one of the, and like, but what is one of the coolest things about though is so, like, I discovered quickly that like the city you mentioned didn't matter necessarily that much as much as the year, like clearly there was like, embedded in this kind of like the high dimensional space within these, these language models were this, were like this, this kind of like, there was a sense of like a mapping between years and some sort of aesthetic. And so you could like ask for, I don't know, 1920 versus 1950 or 1970 or whatever it was. And it would kind of articulate those structures. And I find that very interesting. And actually, and more recently with a lot of the language models, I've been thinking a lot about kind of them as less of like these like agents that can kind of do things and more, um, and this is not my own idea, but like this idea of like simulators, they're kind of like, they're simulating like they have the kind of embedded in them models that have been extracted of the world, but through language and that language, these language worlds are, or these kind of story worlds are actually very different, um, or at least we'll say not entirely overlapping with like the world of physics and reality. And so, and so some, some people have noticed that they call this like the semiotic physics of these language models where it's like, they have, I mean, when you ask for like random numbers, these random numbers have certain biases in them because the way people write about randomness is not always as random as real randomness is, which is kind of interesting. In the same way, oftentimes the way in which you think these, these agents or these models are going to operate, they often end up because they've imbibed so much language. They're based on certain 
uh, like narrative structures or like tropes. And so like the, 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 the most well-known one I think that people are talking about over like the past couple of weeks is like the Waluigi effect. Of like, okay, like you think you've made your, your language model this like very good kind of well-behaved thing, but like it's actually, you've now made it almost like more brittle and it can kind of like easily switch into this, like go from like Luigi from Super Mario to like Waluigi, this like weird agent of chaos or whatever it is. And like, and then and people have kind of like explained how you can kind of do this and, and like how it almost embodies a lot of narrative and like stories that we've been telling and like writing. And because these language models have consumed huge amounts of fiction, they kind of know like their story world, like, like they, they live in story world as opposed to just like, the physics world of like, oh yeah, like, and, and so, so for me, seeing how these things can kind of like trip into these like weird little story worlds things, I think is, is, is really interesting. So it, that is not a segue at all to what your role is and your job uh, as a scientist in residence at Lux Capital. And I'd be doing everyone a disservice if I didn't ask what that job is and what you do. Thank you very much. No, that is a good question. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So I have this title, which I think kind of you can kind of read into it all sorts of things. So basically, my role and so yeah. So Lux and so I work for Lux, which is this venture capital firm, which we kind of invest in like emerging tech, deep tech, frontier tech. Probably the almost like more fun way to describe it is weird science fictiony things, and maybe that's even the more accurate way to describe it. And so my role, and because we range across a lot of different areas, my role is really to survey the landscape of science and technology and find areas communities and individuals that we should be more closely involved with. And some of it is kind of finding interesting companies in those spaces, kind of bring them bring them to our team or finding individuals that, that we might want to build companies around and kind of helping with that. Um, some of it's kind of already after we've, we've invested in connecting those ideas or individuals to our portfolio of companies we've already invested in. So kind of saying like CEO, like so say, talking to one of our CEOs, like Area X is actually really relevant to like whatever you're doing, you might not even be really be aware of it. But a lot of it's also very upstream from investment and just kind of helping kind of explore areas that will eventually be of relevance to our portfolio or, or to our investment theses and kind of, so it's like engaging with the public through writing and speaking or connecting to various communities that are kind of playing with interesting ideas, even if maybe right now they're not quite quite right for for investment. And so that gives me a great deal of flexibility to kind of like, yeah, think about weird research organizations or things around like AI and <laughs> Waluigi or, or thinking about <laughs> things in like the tools for thought space or how like scientific change operates. And so, yeah, it's, uh, it, it, it's a lot of fun. It's such a cool job. You're, you're like the advance guard of the advance guard of venture capital, right? Like Lux prides itself in being at the frontier and you're like, you know, the scout for the firm at the front often in a lot of these industries and sort of surprising technologies that come out, which is why it's so fun to chat and watch what Lux does and see what you're into. And I'm curious, sort of from your seat, you've been there since uh, not quite the beginning, but very early on. I mean, coming up on 10 years now, I think. Well, and actually, so Lux has been around for almost for like I think like over twenty years. I've only been there for like seven and a half. So I mean, I've been there for a while, but yeah, it's uh, um, there was still a long history before me. Okay, well, this is still with your within your tenure, I suppose. What are the sort of technology categories that have either underperformed or overperformed from the sort of priors? <sighs> That's a really good question. I'm trying to think of like which area. I mean, and certainly there was kind of this like. And I guess this is actually before my time, but like there was kind of like the, like all the excitement around clean tech and kind of this like trough of despair when it didn't quite measure up. Um, well, that being said, I feel like there's kind of this, there is this resurgence now over like the past year or two around this kind of stuff. And so I think a lot of these things kind of, kind of come in waves. 
clean tech is like real, right? Like all the renewables, like cost curves keep coming down. It just hasn't had the v- returns that venture capital wanted when they invested. Right. In. And, and, and I yeah. think that's the thing where right? it's like, and, and, and I think the better way to think about this is not whether or not these ideas are real. It's whether or not they've like paid off in the like venture style kind of ways. And so, and yeah. And so, so that's an interesting question of like what feel because right because I guess there's like a there's a number of distinctions there right which are the things that are real that can be like that become like outsized hits which are the things that are real that are maybe not quite ready for venture and then which are the things that we have found to be not real <laughs> and that's an interesting taxonomy I'm not oh man I don't actually have a good sense of like which those like which of those things there are and and to be honest I mean. I mean, I guess I've, I've been at Lux, and you, you said like I've been there for a while, but because we're operating in like things that are pretty frontiery, like they are, they are these kind of like long time horizons. I would say certain things probably around like augmented reality or virtual reality, those things I think are, I mean, I've never, I, I personally have just never been super into that kind of stuff. Separate from that though, I think we are moving forward in that. And certainly with like Oculus, that was a big advance. But like we've, I, but I, I feel like it's one of those kinds of spaces where it's like, and, and there's many different domains where people have been like, oh, this thing has been, I don't know, X years away, but it's been that way for like 50 years. For 10X years. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. So like maybe like people always talk about like VR in that space or maybe I don't know, like nuclear, like certain things around fusion or whatever. Like, like there's a lot of these different things that I've always like, and that being said, I mean, like AI, I think was always kind of one of these things that people always thought was kind of far away. And actually just reading, just rereading right before we, right before we hopped on the original paper that Werner Vinge wrote about the singularity. And I was talking about someone, <laughs> I was talking about it with, with someone this morning. And, and so like this paper, and I read it like a while ago and it's just kind of, it feels like very, like when I read it like a while ago, it felt very science fiction. And cause it was written like 93 and he's like making this prediction of like basically like 30, 30 years plus or minus there's going to be like superhuman intelligence. And like you kind of read it a while back and I'll tell you this is like a fun, weird kind of thing. And, and there's like, you read it now and you're like, oh, he kind of like laid out this like pretty clear roadmap and like we can quibble about all the details and some of this, but like it doesn't feel, and, and I, I think there's many, like there's many unstated things within like how do we get to the singularity, if that even makes sense or if it will ever happen. But the fact that we can kind of like read that document, like that can't, that was from 30 years ago and no longer view it as kind of this like wide-eyed science fiction thing, that's kind of wild. So I would say that like AI has been one of these things that maybe has like underperformed and then like drastically overperformed <laughs> in a very short amount of time. Yeah. So slowly then all at once. Like that's 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 amazing. Very interesting. Okay. What are some facts or statistics that like everyone in your industry knows that would blow other people's minds? So like there's like, the small scale version of this is like, you know, like when you have like a word on the tip of your tongue and you can't think of it. So I have a friend who he is a, he's a cognitive scientist and he has done re- like, there's like research and like, there's questions that they're actually like designed, that the questions are designed to actually elicit that feeling. Like, like because scientists actually know how, like how and kind of why it actually happens. Like there are ways of actually making it where like you kind of know, you know the answer, but you can't actually figure it out. So like, it's like a really weird thing. Like there is like a way of like generating that tip of the tongue phenomenon, which is, uh, which is wild, but unfortunately, so maybe that's a cool fact, but like, oh, that's not, that, that's, that's not quite where you're, where you're, where you're going. <laughs> no, that's wild. That's like a, you know, d- don't tell the job interviewers at Google. Don't tell the hypnotists that the, like those tricks. Okay. Here's, here's another one. What, what is the mental model or heuristic that you find yourself using most frequently? 
I guess I would say probably the most common model that I use, and kind of this is probably like my basis for my, like my roots and like biology is like an evolutionary biology is like evolutionary thinking. It's kind of like looking at systems from a, from an evolutionary perspective and saying, okay, what are like, what are the fitness functions? Like, what does it mean for something to become like more fit or less fit? What is the like what genotype versus phenotype in the system? What is the level at which we're selecting things for? What does it mean? Like, what, what does it mean for a camera explosion to occur? What is the high dimensional space in which things are evolving? So I would say, and like that, that's not a quite like single, it's not certainly not a heuristic, but I feel like it is like a, a bundle of ideas of like kind of saying, okay, here's all this field and here's this field. Like, let's try to do a whole bunch of mapping, see what maps one field to another, and then also see what, where it breaks down. Because I think both where it works and where it breaks down. Then there's some like really interesting stuff there, and then like that's then worth like digging into more deeply. Yeah, I think that's a hugely hugely powerful model. I, I have a few questions I want to kind of circle back to from the the previous points in our conversation. So you we talked about Boston Dynamics and DeepMind as as being like we sort of corner the market on a certain type of academic excellence, and, and I found myself wondering like how many people does it take to corner the market on something like robotics or predictive like machine learning or uh, you know pick a, pick another sort of academic category that that we might brainstorm around yeah that's a good question i i think I mean, there's i guess it depends on the size of size of the field as well as the like like how how much you want to corner of the market. I think there's also, I think it's certainly easier and more feasible, but it's still also very powerful that rather than say, okay, we're cornering the market, like all the talent is now within this organization. You can still, but you could, but you can make it and say, it is, it has enough people that, that it becomes this like massive attractor of talent where it's like anyone who's anyone wants to go to one of these kinds of organizations. And so I feel like there, it's like less about like, okay, corner all of it and more about like a critical mass kind of thing. Now, yeah, I, I think it depends on the specific domain. And it could be the kind of thing where it's like, okay, if it's a very cutting edge thing and people and it's like moving very quickly, then maybe it's quite easy because you can kind of just get the, the people who are working at that frontier. Because there's, you know, if five or 10 some, people who are the foremost experts in the world. Right, yeah. Or, or if it's like a really niche kind of thing, or if it's something that kind of is at the intersection of a lot of different domains, that's also, I think, where it's kind of easier because there's not that many people who are willing to kind of play at that intersection because you're kind of having to like move a little bit outside of your area of expertise. So it really depends on the area. But I would say as long like once you kind of make it that like critical mass attractor, then maybe it'll have some sort of like feedback effect. Yeah, that's a, that's a interesting. I like the critical mass. The threshold for that is so much lower necessarily than, you know, corner the market or something like that. So that's a, that's a good, good, good distinction. Is there any other like what what is maybe the space from your crow's nest aboard the the good pirate ship Lux? Are are there just like whole swaths or or industries that you feel like you have an eye on or or you're interested in that most people are just not paying attention to sort of in the in the broader like tech landscape? I mean, there's very rarely like areas like no one is like no one else is paying attention to. I, it's like one area that I that I like thinking about that. I'm not sure if it's like this really important area in the tech landscape, but I think it's like fun and interesting and, and kind of like not, not as many people are thinking about is what I call kind of this like space of like emergent microcosms, where it's kind of, it's like all the different ways in which you can kind of use relatively small amounts of computer code to unfurl some sort of like complex virtual world. And so like an example would be like 
like cellular automata of like like Conway's Game of Life. That would be kind of like the canonical example of like more recent versions of like Lenia. But then you also have things like like all the other artificial life examples that people are playing with, or like other things like agent-based modeling, or certain areas within simulation, or certain things like in the in like the gaming world where people are kind of doing this like generative art or kind of generative design where they're kind of using relatively compact descriptions to kind of make a whole bunch of different things. And so it's like this weird thing that kind of is at the intersection of physics and complexity science and artificial life and gaming. And I'm not sure, at least in my mind, I think it's all kind of deeply connected. Um, maybe most people don't think it's deeply connected and that's why they're not sorry, think of it as a specific field. But I definitely think there's something really interesting there. And it's kind of, and people are continuing to play with it. And, and so that that's one area that I, that I like thinking about a lot. But it's, uh, it's kind of me kind of saying, okay, like, guess what? Like, you and you and you, you're all doing things that are kind of like spiritually connected and, and you guys should be interested in each other. And they are for the most part, which is nice. Yeah. And you get to kind of bring them together and hopefully, yeah, make some, make some sparks fly. I, I will sort of tee you up to do the closing parentheses on this conversation and ask you for some sci-fi book recommendations. We started with the impact your, you know, your grandfather had on you and how influential sci-fi has been. I know you are a deep and wide reader in sci-fi. So what, what are uh, some books that people should, should pick up, myself included? Okay. Yeah. And so I would say, I mean, certainly I'm a very big, I, mean, I guess there's kind of like different levels of like how well-known and how like unwell-known. I'll, I'll just say a whole bunch of different things, but I would say- <laughs> I knew you um, would. <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> so, I mean, like certainly like, like the Three Body Problem trilogy, obviously very well-known, but I think it's amazing. And I think, and I, I, to my mind, at least like each- successive book kind of just gets like grander and grander in scope until it's just like that's what i love about that series it starts at basically where we are now and it ends so far like it, it takes you all the way to somewhere unimaginable it's incredible yes and it's yeah so that, that's fantastic i'm a big fan of the uh, the writing of neil stevenson i love his stuff i would say i'm actually partial to a lot of his like more historical like historically minded so like i think some people like his like cyberpunk kind of stuff i I have, I, I enjoy reading basically everything he's written. I would say I'm more partial to like, it's like the Baroque cycle, which is this like massive trilogy about like the scientific revolution and the invention of the modern monetary system. And like, but it's also throwing in a ton of other ideas. Like, yeah, that, that, those books are wild and strange. And yeah, I find them fascinating. What was the one you just, you uh, described to me? We were talking about sort of a post-scarcity world, like sci-fi that takes place like after so much. So this post-scarcity society, I mean, I, I, obviously there's like the Star Trek world, which is, which is great. The, uh, and I, I grew up on Star Trek Next Generation, but I think, I think you're talking about, so um, Ian, Ian Banks's culture novels, so like the culture series, so it takes place in, it's, it's kind of this like pan-human society called the culture, but the way it kind of operates, it's really, there's like these super intelligent minds that basically run everything and then humans can kind of just do whatever they want and like they have like they can like excrete any chemical and hormone straight from their brain just by thinking it and they can kind of live as long as they want and do whatever they want and i think i think, I think the way banks describes is like we're effectively immortal but it's kind of considered in poor taste to live beyond several hundred years or something like that um, <laughs> but it's like this weird world where it's like you can kind of do anything you want indulge in all of your hobbies the interesting thing about the, the, the novels, though, is you don't really see that much in the like in sort of like the core of the culture or of that of the actual society because it doesn't necessarily make for good storytelling. So oftentimes the stories take place at the boundaries where like the culture is interacting with other societies, whether it's like they're 
they're at war or they're trying to change some other society to kind of make it more like the culture or whatever it is. And so they have, there's like their, their contact division, which interacts with other societies. And then they have uh, this kind of like a very euphemistically named organization called Special Circumstances, which is kind of like the group that kind of goes in and like changes governments and societies to kind of make them more like the culture, which is this like weird, like anarchist, socialist, post-scarcity utopia. Those books are bonkers. Um, they're a lot of fun though. <laughs> and yeah, what other one? And so actually, I, I just read this novel called, this is, I guess this is more fantasy, but it's kind of like a weird fantasy. So it's, it's called Babel. And it basically, the premise of it is, it's, it takes place in like the mid 1800s. And the idea is there are these translators and like they study the, the art of translation. Because even when you have one word um, in one language, you think it maps exactly to one other word, like there's like connotations that are slightly different. And the idea is if you can write a word on a piece of silver and then it's translation in another language on the, on the other side of the silver, the space, the gap, like the, the, the sort of like mental gap in connotations gets manifested as some sort of thing. And so like, and it turned out you can use this as a technology. And so like they end up using this like weird translation silver stuff for making an industrial revolution. And then it also ties into like thinking about empire and colonialism and how we think about translation and language. And so that's not quite science fiction, but it's like super thought provoking in terms of how we think about words and language and, and meaning. So that was, that was a book I just happened to finish recently. Thank you, Sam, so much for for taking the time and being such a teacher and such a leader in the space and sharing everything that you know. I'm I'm so excited every time we get to talk because you just have such a fascinating job and outlook, and it's a it's a pleasure to get to peek into it. Thank you so much. This has been a lot of fun. I really appreciate it. I appreciate you hanging out with us today. Thank you for listening. If you like this episode, here's three other quick episodes that you will also adore uh, with very similar energy. Number 51, Max Olson. Number 34, Josh Stores Hall. Both cover a very wide range of exciting technologies, just like we did here with Sam. And number 58, Brett Kugelmass is a deep dive into nuclear and the progress that's getting made there. Brett just signed a huge deal for like 30 nuclear reactors to get built uh, all over Europe. So uh, really exciting time to go and check out that episode. Accredited investors are welcome to put their money into early stage tech startups uh, that we invest in alongside me and my partners in Rolling Fund. The link to that's in the show notes. Uh, I also encourage you to check out madebybread.com if you need some beautiful software built. And for a free way to support the show, really please leave a quick review for this show, this episode this in your podcast player or text this episode to a friend learning, or coworker you think would enjoy it. Keep those sandwiches what toasted. What our brains aren't evolved to comprehend is how much leverage is possible in modern society there's a revolution going on, man. Uh, go pay attention to it. Get a part of it. Get exposed to it. You're going to make money along the way. You're going to have fun. A call to adventure. This is the new form of leverage. Take a few quiet moments for yourself. Breathe deep and be well. The Podcast Super Friends is a monthly meeting of five podcast producers. Hi, I'm Catherine O'Brien from Branch Out Programs in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I'm John Gay from Jagged Detroit Podcasts. I'm Matt Kundal from the Sound Off Podcast Network. I'm David Yes from Pod 617, the Boston Podcast Network. And I'm Johnny Peterson from Straight Up Podcasts. 
Together, they form the Podcast Super Friends, an alliance of podcast masterminds sharing best practices, insights, and discussions to help make you a better podcaster. Follow or subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or at soundoff.network.